Hello, welcome to another rip-roaring episode of Pod Like a Hole. Welcome to season two, all of you fellow fans. I know that we've been on this journey of talking about David Bowie. And so instead of falling into the hole we did with Nine Inch Nails, we're out in space doing our space podity, where it's a deep dive into David Bowie and how we get to each of his excellent works. We roll our special diamond dice. On each of those diamond dice faces is another alter ego of David Bowie, and it steers us right where we need to go. The last time we landed on number seven. Number seven is David Bowie's covers album released in 1973, Pinups. An all covers record produced by Ken Scott and David Bowie. Uh, this is Mark, your host and co-creator of all things Pod Like a Holy, um, and my fellow board members at the Beast with Three Backs Incorporated. I have Eric. Hello, I'll be doing some of the ripping and some of the roaring tonight. Ah, yes. Crack Research Team has also been put to bed at Eric's house in the form of Linux. So thank you for always producing some great content for our fans, our holers, our potters. It's a it's um, a sweatshop of information over here. <laughs> our podstronauts. Um, and then also, it, it wouldn't be a party if we didn't have Steve along for the ride. Steven, did you bring the wild turkey with you? Yes, I did, because I have Friday on my mind, even though it's a Saturday. Ah, uh, yes. The working man's... White man's burden, as old. <laughs> I rewatched The Shining the other day. Goddamn, holds up. Jack Nicholson just on a whole nother level. White man's burden, Lloyd. White man's burden. <laughs> yeah. Um, good to have you, Steve. I hear, I, I hear Doctor Sleep isn't that bad. Yeah, I've heard it's actually pretty good. Uh, I, I see. The thing is about Doctor Sleep, and I don't know if it's uh, going in the Kubrick universe because. The Shining, the movie, ended a whole hell of a lot differently than Shining, the book. Uh, famously, Stephen King said, no, 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 do not like. And so he went and remade it with the guy from Wings. Uh, with Stephen Weber. <laughs> yes, I remember. I remember those three special nights on, uh, you know, your uh, primetime TV. Uh, I heard uh, Dr. Sleep is there's some meta commentary of Stephen King kind of coming to terms with uh, with The Shining, though, with with the Kubrick shining so they somehow managed to have their cake and eat it too i hear about how they reconcile that it's based off a book that does not acknowledge the movie that it highly uh bases much of its groundwork from so they, they, they pull it off i guess but what i like about it from what i've seen i haven't seen it i haven't read the book but i do know that it's got psychic vampire cults and from everything I've read about this psychic vampire cult, it reminds me of some of the stuff you see in the later Dark Tower books, which I was a fan of. Father Callahan! Which I was a fan of when I finally got around to him. So to see more of that later Steve, Stephen King psychic vampire stuff, weirdness, 
on the movie screen is, is fun to me. Yeah. I mean, it really does feel, uh, remember that book insomnia? Um, I think, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, all of that's probably just in, you know, the Stephen King universe, kind of like the MCU, but in Stephen King land. Um, I've read that book all the way through three times. Wow. Big fan. Wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> Mainly because I got it when it first oh. came out. And as a kid, when you're a kid, you absorb what you have. And so I didn't have, you know, access to everything I want on the internet. So I made that book work for me. And uh, then when I was an adult, I read it again when I was reading all the Dark Tower books. It is a brick. <laughs> I took a uh, summer. I took a summer and read the uh, Stephen King's Desperation and Richard Bachman's oh, yeah. Regulators in the same summer and caught all the connections. I remember actually uh, Steve bo- had both of those books, I think, before I did. And me and him had to help my dad move my sister down to San Luis Obispo. And that's a six hour drive. And I think Steven finished like he was halfway through, but he finished it on that car ride. And uh, yeah, it would have been desperation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that of the two that I finished. And uh, yep, I forgot all about that. Uh, that endeavor until right now. That was a long day. <laughs> that was a very long day. <laughs> oh, what a tangled web our, our histories are. You, you two more so than me. 12 hours uh, in a truck with my dad. So small cab. There you go. We're in the back. Thinking, you know, who knows what? Did kind he have of- a? Did he? Did he have Rush Limbaugh's greatest hits recorded to tape that you could uh, play on the drive? I'm sure we listened to KFBK at least a couple times. I'm, I'm fairly ride. certain. Fairly certain there's some kind of brainwashing he was attempting there, in between probably yeah. telling us to put our backs into it when we we're trying to move a couch <laughs> or something. And yep. uh, yeah. By the way, speaking of terrible radio people. Don Imus died this weekend. Who gives a shit? Oh boy. I don't have any, I don't even know who that is. Are you serious? You don't even know. He was like the guy that, uh, Howard Stern essentially replaced as being the shock jock. But yeah, Don, Don Imus, just this old leather bag wearing a cowboy hat. And he had his own little show on some channel as well that did his, I don't know, garbage person. He looked like he was melting in the sun. I'm surprised he was even still alive. So, um, yeah. Hopefully, the Imus family doesn't put a pox on my house for saying that much. But go ahead, Steve. Some of our listeners might be wondering if they're still alive too, with how far off the track we've even gotten by our standards. (laughs) Mark, what are we doing here tonight? All right. Well, tonight, folks, we're going to be talking about pinups. But first, before we get into that, is there anything on the Bowie Bulletin or the the Nine Inch Newswire? Uh, Bowie Bulletin, of course, we've got our um, got the Bowie tribute show coming up that uh, we did our little interview for with um, Bougie, Bougie, uh, who's curating the whole thing. There's going to be three bands and a DJ. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, that is January 10th. It's a Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. Um, I can definitely speak for myself that I will be there, but anybody in the Northern California area that wants to see some good Bowie rock, Come on out, listen to our interview. It's a fun little talk. There you go. And then uh, in the Newswire from Nine Inch Newswire, of course. Um, what do we got? Oh, Trent's been getting Trent's been getting mouthy again. <laughs> in the best way. In the best way. He uh, 
uh, and a bunch of new little news clips that have dropped. I mean, obviously, he and Atticus Ross are getting a lot of great attention, deserved attention for the Watchmen scores. Um, and then in a recent, apparently, uh, the or it hasn't. It's not going to drop till later this week. But there's a revolver. Uh, he they they they're on the cover of the new revolver magazine that's dropping at on the 31st, I believe. And uh, he apparently, uh, well, in addition to dropping that, they're going to try to make some new music coming up, but it's going to be all collaborative. Or, or rather, they're going to try some collaborations, and if it doesn't work out, they'll scrap it. And they want to go back on tour in 2020. But they also said that the Bird Box score was a fucking, what do they say, a joke or a, a mistake or something? A waste of fucking time. Um, not to mention, <laughs> yeah. it, not so much like in terms of listening to it, because it's not a bad score. It, when we covered it, we definitely didn't think it was a highlight of the score work. But apparently, and uh, we had some mixed reviews. Steve fucking hated that movie. Me and Eric were like, it was just bad, but not something that I felt like I needed to write my congressman about. Like Steve, Steve was ready to fight somebody. No, yeah. Um, but apparently, it didn't offend me on a base level. But, but apparently, yeah. the music was just dropped in dribs and drabs, and they spent a lot of time working it out. And uh, when they saw the finished product, Trent was none too happy, and he called it a complete fucking waste of time. Uh, to even have done that, and apparently an upcoming score, uh, The Woman in the Window, they've decided to go ahead and throw it out the window and say bye-bye and not uh, not do that one. So, and I wonder about that one. I think it was after test screenings that they um, opted to do that. So, Because he seemed to be um, more amicable towards that movie, almost like uh, Joe Wright or whoever the director of that was, was like, well... We kind of, according to test screenings, we kind of want to go this way. And Trent's like, eh, and that, that's the case where well, you can find somebody else and kind of backed out. Yeah. The, uh, uh, someday I'm going to listen to that expanded version of the bird box score, like the, the two plus hour version. And, uh, there might be some great stuff in there because we shouldn't let a, a subpar movie, you know, tarnish some possibly good Trent Atticus music, but, um. Yeah, so there's that. But in great news, they are scoring the new David Fincher film, who hasn't made a film since Gone Girl. It's called Mank, and it's about a blacklisted um, film writer uh, during Citizen Kane, and they're scoring it. And it's probably going to be a great time because Fincher does a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Is that? I'd like to see if I'd like to see if they try to do a period appropriate music in that, which they did dabble in a little bit with Watchmen. They they said they are going to. They said they're only using instruments that were around at that time. So that'll be interesting. Has Fincher not made a movie since Gone Girl? He hasn't. He's dead. He uh, show runs Mindhunters, which is a great show on Netflix. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. He directs he directs almost every episode. If not oh, everyone. so that's what um, he's been up to. OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it, it's it's awesome. And uh Steve and I talked a little bit about how it, uh, or for me at least, how it it sparked some major love for Little Roxy music with the use of one particular song on that show. Um, but yeah, no, it's a it's if you like David Fincher, give it a give it a spin. It's not it's not some like exploitative true crime shit. It's it's a really cool little period piece. And for local boys, you get to see Sacramento in the seventies, so that's kind of fun. All right, or we can just watch uh, the entire series of The Mentalist where it's set it in here in Sacramento in modern times. Um, but that's neither here nor there. That's not Bowie related. So moving on. So the year was 1973. Eric, paint the picture. What was going on in 1973? Oh. 
Sure. Be three. Crazy, especially in uh, in America. Absolutely crazy. Um, so you've got a you got big huge things happening. Uh, you got Nixon in office, and seventy three was the beginning of the Watergate uh, hearings. Um, but what kickstarted all that was his vice president Spiro Agnew. He resigned. Um, he was ta- tax evasion and receiving bribes. Like he was super corrupt. Um, Agnew. <laughs> 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 All right, go ahead. Yes, he showed. He got a little too much spotlight on Nixon's dealings, and things would not be suck it to me. <laughs> uh, Was Nixon laughing yet? Like, when did he? Uh, when did he get on laughing? I. Continue, Eric. Don't don't worry about it. It's a a hypothetical question. Go ahead. Continue. We'll get to TV shows in a minute. Um, Hold on. Speaking of laughing, Eric and I, uh, I saw it in the theater, but he and I both, uh, we did our teenage text thing last night and watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the same time last night. Yes. And uh, my God, there's a scene in there. Where it's uh, on a show like Laugh-In called Hullabaloo. And <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio has to sing this song called Behind the Green Door. Oh, God. And it's it is so one bad. Of, <laughs> it's so funny. It is. Mark, you got to watch that movie, man. It's just. Oh, I'm dying oh. to. I'm, I'm waiting to just purchase it. I just want to buy it. I don't want to rent it. I want to buy it. I don't, but I'm just waiting to see if iTunes will put it on sale for like $5 cheaper. That's it. I don't think you're spoiling yourself if you just go to YouTube and just just look at the hullabaloo segment. It is oh goddamn ridiculous. It uh, it, uh, it went straight. I, it went straight number two with a bullet on my uh, Quentin Tarantino power rankings. It's uh it's it's good. That's it's gonna awesome. be worth, worth I've your heard time. it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's it's a very sweet movie. I, I liked it a lot. Um, and speaking yeah. speaking of Mine Hunters, the same guy plays Charles Manson on that show as well. Yes, that's true. That's true. A little crossover. Oh really. How about that? He's getting typecast. So back to 1973 and Nixon and impeachment, Niagnew and whatever else. Right. So Roe versus Wade uh, rule. The uh, Supreme Court ruled on that this year. So that that was a big one. That was a big one that these. Uh, I mean, look at that. It was it was a corrupt Republican was running the country and they could still pass that. Now, you know, now it's 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 in jeopardy. It's uh, terrifying. Anyways, just a little aside there. Uh, you got your big movies this year. Uh, the Exorcist. You got Deliverance. Uh, oh, we just mentioned this in our last uh, little B-side. You got Live and Let Die, the James first Roger Moore James Bond film. Um, pretty good one. There's some problematic depictions of voodoo, but it's 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 pretty it's a pretty solid little movie. And the least ridiculous of all the Roger Moores. Any de- any depiction of voodoo in modern American culture up until like 1999 is usually problematic. It's, uh, you know, you might, the serpent and the rainbow might be the only thing out there that's uh, on. You have a Jesus Christ Superstar and Last Tango in Paris. And then one of the biggest ones, especially for giving a little attention to Mr. George Lucas was American Graffiti. Yep. How do you guys feel about, how do you guys feel about that? Uh, little nostalgic uh, uh, slice of doo-wop. American Graffiti, uh, I actually watched it for the very first time very recently. Um, it's 
It's not bad. I mean, it's like a coming of age movie that's been overdone and done and done and done. It's on the AFI top 100 list of all, uh, of all times, films of all time. And I don't think it deserves to be there, but it certainly is an interesting film with some good performances. It's got Modesto, um, uh, Harrison Ford in his one of his first original roles of kind of in a speaking role. Um, it wasn't bad. I mean, I, I, I'm an apologist for George Lucas. What can I say? Um, he's brought such great things as Star Wars into our, our current culture. And it's unfortunate that um, people just can't understand that these are great escapist films um, that they take them way too seriously and shout others down about if they love or hate something. Look, if it's not for you, it's not for you, but I just don't understand why you have to spread a campaign of why it's damaged your childhood and this and that. But yes, as an aside, American graffiti is an all right movie. But before I talk about American graffiti, I wanted to make sure that uh, we talk about live and let die. It has the first introduction of that Sheriff Pepper who shows up on a few <laughs> other. <laughs> oh. oh my God. And he's, he's based on Smokey and the bandits, uh, Sheriff Buford T justice. He is the, he is the, the bond universe capital. And he's in like two or three of those movies. Oh fuck. Like he goes on vacation and to China of all things. And no. like one of yeah. the other movies. <laughs> He's like, yeah, oh, God, this is really bad. But he's like, look at all these people. They're walking around in their goddamn pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. He's a, oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Sheriff Sheriff Pepper. What the, why, they should bring him back in the new Daniel Craig film. (laughs) They absolutely should. And you see, my, my father would like that because my father and I were watching Dr. No a few nights ago, which uh, put me in the mood to watch all of them in a row. Uh, we'll see if I get around to that. Having a hard enough time, you know, uh, get getting through listening to a bunch of Pink Floyd records, let alone dumping a bunch of Dr. No on top of it or James Bond. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> my dad did mention that, you know, the, the Daniel Craig ones, the, they look cool, but they're just too PC culture for him. So maybe if we could stick this Sheriff Pepper in the middle, it'll <laughs> even things out. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of what even gets political in these. Eh, anyways. Um, well, Eric, there's strong women who have their own agency. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Ah, fair enough. Oh, God. Oh, man. You know, and, and all I've got to say about American Graffiti is it is no Grease 2. <laughs> it's certainly not. No. They did do a sequel to American Graffiti, by the way. George Lucas had nothing to do with it. It's called More American Graffiti. And uh, apparently it's just a train wreck done over two hours. So. Don't don't yes. look for that one. Well, the, it kickstarted American Graffiti kickstarted this like 60s nostalgia that would last for a decade and a half, like 80s, like every other every other month. There was a movie about the 60s that came out um, and I'm sure they were, you know, continuing to try to capitalize on that for sure. But uh, I'm sure it didn't take place in the 50s. I thought it was early. I thought American Graffiti was like early 60s. I think it was early. Well, yeah, I think it was early 60s um, because I think it ends with uh, one of the characters because it does the whole animal house thing where, you know, where they ended up and blah, blah, blah. And one of them, like, apparently died in Vietnam. But then in more American Graffiti, that same character shows like he faked his death in Vietnam. I don't know. It's 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 nonsense. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh boy! Uh, all right, let's talk it. Uh, they could, you know, they 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 sat there and they're like, "Well, what if we gave him a twin?" And they said, "No, no, no, no. That's that's too garish. Just have him fake his own death." As exactly. A yep. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, all right. So talking about music here, uh, Steve. I uh, Elvis is Aloha from Hawaii. Television special is the biggest thing. One billion viewers. Biggest thing on on TV and music this year. Uh, Broadcasted everywhere via satellite, man. It was a big deal. Is that the one where he's like brand new Cadillac and he's throwing keys out to the audience? That uh, I don't remember it note for note. I think I, I've may I don't think I've ever watched it all the way through, but I've listened to some of it. But uh, I'm sure he's doing karate chops and uh, <laughs> it's definitely it's that era of Elvis where he does the uh, the American trilogy. That has the whole Yankee Doodle Dandy movement oh. in it. Uh, if, you get, if you haven't listened to it, it, it ends on a glorious glory, glory, hallelujah. It's a, a wonder. It's a whole like three-part play. It's beautiful. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. Uh, so other music. So, yeah, Pink Floyd's uh, Dark Side of the Moon dropped this year, which was a, a big cultural moment. Um, we'll be talking about Pink Floyd it's, a little it's, later. It's, it's the album that it's the album that took Pink Floyd out of the you know just the bombs and the heads of the college students, made them accessible for everybody. You know, I was reading, I mean, to, to Steve's point, I was reading today that one out of every 14 people alive have owned a copy of Dark Side of the Moon. Wow. Yeah. I believe it. I believe it. Uh... It's a perfect record. It's it's perfect. I, I Mark Mark lit a, a fuse under me to dive back into Pink Floyd like I haven't in, in ages, and I'm really enjoying. Well, it. we will be yeah, that album. We'll be flipping on the uh, Laser Light Show and talking about that. I'm sure a little bit later on this album. Uh, we got uh, the Eagles. We're on this episode. Yes. This is ah, on this episode. We'll go the album pinups, but yes. Okay. Uh, the Eagles were big this year. Um, I think, uh, I don't know. I think, did you guys ever watch that four hour Fuck. Eagles? Yeah. Yeah. My dad, uh, my dad took me hostage one, like, like Christmas night and me and my brothers all sat and watched all four hours of that, of that thing. I heard it's pretty good though. Uh, I actually, I mean, it, yeah, that's, that's the thing is that I hate the Eagles, but the story of the Eagles is far more entertaining than yeah. listening to the Eagles. I mean, kind of, they're like the, they're like a boy band. They were like they were like handpicked by producers to get together and and make music together. Um, I don't know. I, I would say four hours is excessive. No, nobody nobody handpicked Joe Walsh. Joe, a force of nature like Joe Walsh, doesn't get handpicked. He just happens. I've heard his Maserati goes <laughs> that one song. My Maserati was one eighty five. All right, sorry. <laughs> Uh, all right. Um, Michael Jackson was cracking some solo songs this year. 
Um, Elton John gave us that abysmal crocodile rock. I'm sorry. It's not a good song. And Elton John's a fine, fine, fine performer. Yeah, that uh, one's and- definitely made for the Muppet Show, uh, which he did perform on the Muppet Show with a bunch of crocodiles. Yeah, probably the best and the only, the only, the only, the only home for that song. Um, and then uh, this is funny. This list, uh, Wizard with two Z's, is on this list. And I, is that like, I don't know. <laughs> I think this is like a British list. Uh, no, I no, no. see. Wizard with with two Z's. It sounds like a metal band. Is Steve, that Mortis's dad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, you would Steve, know. You're the you're the fan. Yeah, Steve, help me out with Wizard here. Is that a is that a metal band? Steve apparently uh, he's got to correct his children apparently. Um, so yes, I, I've never heard of Wizard, and especially if it's got two Z's in the title, I've never heard even Steve talk about that band. So maybe it is some prog rock ah, band. I saw it. It's a glam band uh, that was uh, uh, performed by Roy Wood, co-founder of Electric Light Orchestra. Oh, okay. All right. And they were also big. They were also big this year. So there you have it. And then fell into obscurity in 1974 because they were never heard from again. That's right. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bing bong. Um, uh, so what else you got there, Eric? What else is in, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. bag of we'll, 1973? We'll, we'll wrap up 73 right now, but you had some television shows. You let me know if you were a fan of any of these. You got The Odd Couple. You got Partridge Family. You got Columbo and you got MASH and Sanford and Son, which we've talked about. So yeah. uh, well, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Columbo. I mean, I probably only watched 10 episodes in my life, but I love Peter Falk. Sure. He's a lot yeah, of fun. I mean, he's, he is a character. He is a character. Him and his glass eye and that cigar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was he, was he in a, uh, and I'm, I'm really bad. Sometimes Peter Falk and Dennis Farino blend together for me. Which one was in a uh, uh, maid? Uh, yeah. Was Peter Falk. I don't understand how Dennis Farina is. Gonna mix <laughs> I don't up know. With him, I, oh, I mean, Dennis. Maybe, maybe Peter Falk and like <laughs> Judd Hirsch, maybe, but not Dennis not Farina Dennis from Farina. snatch. Right. Like that guy who was in get shorty. Right. That guy. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You got yeah. It. I have no yeah. idea, Eric. Your, your brain is turning into soup. <laughs> <laughs> well actually i could slightly it made dennis freena rest in peace well all these men are dead maybe judd hirsch is still with us yeah he still is he was in that terrible independence day sequel but um you know what's funny is that when i was saying that and chewing eric out just now is i still yeah think you know dennis freena and in colombo are not yeah, i can't mix them up but i thought he meant i he said dennis freena and in my head i thought of dennis franz from, from nypd uh, blue <laughs> nypd Old blue sipowitz <laughs> No, no. (laughs) No. Oh boy. Yeah, and and now now that I'm looking at Dennis Farina, you can't really you can't really mix him up with Peter Falk. Um, I just feel like they were TV (laughs) actors from the '70s. But, anyways, I mean, if you're gonna mix Dennis Franz up with anybody, it'd probably be uh, Michael Chiklis from his commish (laughs) years, if anyone. Yeah. (laughs) Oh boy. All right, that's all I got. That's that's 73. No, it's not. Shit, fuck. It's a, do you hear us trying to just it's power through? Coming in. Never gonna happen. You can't you can't power through this this uh this 
this linebacker of a song here. Because what was going on in 1973 was sports. Well, whenever we can mention the early to mid-70s and we talk about baseball, it's because we can talk about the Oakland A's winning the World Series yet again. This time over the New York Mets. Over in basketball, the New York Knicks, they beat the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA. And during these years, there was also the ABA, which was kind of like the uh, WCW to the NBA's WWF. And that was the Indiana Pacers beating the, Ken- the Kentucky Colonels. The Kentucky Colonels did not make the transition to the NBA. Over in football, we had the man who could not find the football section <laughs> in Wikipedia. <laughs> And when he did, it turned out that the Miami Dolphins beat the Washington Redskins. To com- that was the year that the Miami Dolphins had the perfect season. They beat the Washington Redskins. to They won every game in the regular season and any game in the playoffs. And every year since then, you might hear about this, that every one of the clowns on that team, uh, if there's ever a team that has like won seven in a row or nine in a row, when they finally lose that game, that first game, and they might even go like winning just one game all season, the Miami Dolphins from 1972, those of them that aren't dead, they uh, they all celebrate because they're uh, didn't one of their kickers uh, miss the and kick because the ball wasn't laces out, and then eventually turned into a woman and. <laughs> <laughs> Mixing things up here. Laces out, Dan. Laces the, uh, out. Fink- Finkel or Einhorn? Finkel or Einhorn? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be Mark. That was fiction. That was Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. The but first Dan movie. Marino was in that. He was in that. He was in that. Didn't, people can do more than one thing, but yes. <laughs> but, uh, that's a fine, a fine film. This is my favorite sport, and, sports uh, talk, oh. just, just because we got to reference that. Go on. <laughs> that's yeah probably everything you know about sports you know from early 90s comedies <laughs> and over in boxing George Foreman beat Joe Frazier by a knockout in two rounds there you go sports. great that's great stuff that was out of this world buddy um, all right, so we've gotten into 1973. Now, how did the hell did this album come together? Um, Eric, do you got any backstory, any any uh, any tidbits before we dive into track by track? I do, I do. Um, so Bowie was uh, 73, so he just gotten kind of through his Ziggy and Aladdin saying years, yes correct that is correct yep your notes are correct. yeah yeah. and he was uh he was feeling kind of burned out he hadn't written a song since aladdin sane and he'd been touring i mean not during the whole tour had he even tried to make new music um and i mean if you wanted to take just the meat and potatoes version of this he needed an album so he knew he could just do covers real quick and fulfill his contract um but you know with bowie he's always loved a good cover. There's not, there's not an album I can think of that doesn't have one on there somewhere. He's all, he's always loved a good cover. Um, 
So originally what this album was supposed to be, according to Ken Scott, was it was going to be one new song, original song, and then all covers. But that ended up getting scrapped and they just went with it. They went with the covers on this one. And um, in the liner notes, Bowie said, these are my favorite songs from 1964 to 1967 during a very specific like club scene in London. Um, something called the Ricky Tick. It was definitely like you can tell by listening to it. It's er, it's mod music. It's British Invasion. Um, uh, you guys ever listen to like uh, the Nuggets box set? Um, not the box set whole, but they would release like um, Volume One Nuggets. You know, yeah. So I, I kind of those, yeah. um, I guess, old and dusty songs that no one really paid attention to. Yeah, right. Definitely like what? Yeah, a lot of a lot of them. A lot of them for you know they they. Yes, I have not the whole box set, but a good chunk of it, and a lot of it was some of that stuff starting from the uh, the end of the psych era, and into some of the more uh, garage rocky Detroit sound stuff. Of which, on on those is where I discovered that Bob Seger's early stuff is actually really good. Wow, yeah, uh, I remember I bought the first Nuggets thing for my dad, who's a big nerd for that that British Invasion stuff, and. Um... It's nothing I would ever like seek out personally, but um, listening to it, I mean, there's really a cool thing kind of going on. It was a lot rawer than a lot of the music going on at that time and uh, uh, kind of fun. So like definitely Garage Rocky. So he was he was definitely he was picking bands, probably some stuff that he was covering in his random projects at that time um, and just some songs that he liked. Does it right? I mean, the only thing that I found was uh, I think a little morsel was saying that um, this was kind of an in-between album. He essentially needed to rush something out in order to, I guess, capitalize on the momentum from Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane before he transitioned into his next album. Um, so it was kind of a rush job uh, between Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs, uh, but he was more than happy to oblige by creating a cover album essentially. So I think you're right on the money. Yeah. I, I didn't get much else of this, of the kind of the stories from this time, but yeah, he was, it was songs he liked anyways. And he, uh, he had his studio band ready yep. to go. And I believe this was the last recording, um, with all of the spiders. So yeah, David Bowie on vocals, guitar, and uh, all other things. Mick Ronson on lead guitar, Trevor Boulder on bass guitar, and uh, actually, it didn't have uh, Woody Woodmansey on on drums. It had Ainsley Dunbar, and uh, Ainsley Dunbar was a part of another band. Who, um, he was part of the um, Mojos, um, uh, and he wasn't on the the original cover version. We'll we'll talk about the Mojos when we talk about everything's all right. But uh, he was part of that band. And he came on over to Bowie 
Uh, this is the first appearance with Ainsley Dunbar playing drums for Bowie on this one. Mm-hmm. Well, I might actually go check out some more of the Mojos because the drumming on this album was probably yes, one of my favorite parts. Yes, and I, I would absolutely agree with you. There are some a couple of songs on here that uh, um, there was drumming out of his mind. Uh, very good, very good drumming. Um, apparently, Bowie also considered making a pinup sequel uh, somewhere down the road between um, kind of in the latter half of his career around the 2000s, but he just decided not to. And um, and some of those songs that he was going to cover for that pinup sequel appeared on Heathen and uh, Reality. So my guess would be, you know, Cactus, um, I've Been Waiting for You, and uh, Pablo Picasso, and um, I can't remember any other cover song off of... Uh, reality but we'll probably talk about that when we get there but anyhow um oh and that and that title was going to be called boeing out and that's a terrible title and thank god it never happened (laughs) (laughs) let me guys let me ask you guys this uh this is the last album with the majority of the spiders from mars and it very much sounds to me like almost like it, it, they're fulfilling the contract here on all fronts. And even the album kind of sounded like it was quickly recorded to me. Um, was this recorded after the show where he announced he was breaking up the it was spiders reco- from Mars? Recorded July to August, 1973. So yeah, it was a very short recording time, about a month. And I, for the life of me, I don't know when that last show occurred. Um, I would imagine that it, uh, that happened before this because Aladdin Sane had come out and then this one. Um, so he probably was referring to this is the last show that uh, they'll ever play as Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That's the way that I interpret that rather than them just completely dissolving and never working together again. I always thought um, it was him like saying he was going to uh, dissolve them. I don't know. That's how I always took it. It, it, it could have been possible. Um that uh, because after this album came Diamond Dogs and you've got a kind of a whole new slate of, of folks on that one. And hey, when um, did you when did you say they recorded uh, pinups? Uh, 1973, July and August. OK, they announced that they that show was July 3rd of 73. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Probably we're in the middle of this. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, God. Right. And they're just like, <laughs> okay, then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. And not to step on your toes, Eric, but uh, this this album has uh, songs from British bands such as The Pretty Things, Them, Yardbirds, um, Pink Floyd, uh, Mojo's, The Who, The Easy Beats, The Mercies, and The Kinks. And it was originally supposed to include um, White Light, White Heat. It was recorded. That's Velvet Underground. Um, They, you can find them playing it live on um, that Ziggy Stardust uh, motion picture soundtrack. And um, it never was released. And Bowie decided to donate that to Mick Ronson for his 1975 album right. play. Don't a, they do a they do a great cover um, of it? But I, um, I, I can kind of see it not fitting on this because for the yeah. mo- this, for the most part, this is all that that uh, British invasion stuff. So definitely, yeah, it definitely has a theme of kind of that mod sound um, with what was going on during that period in London. Hello? Uh, 
who's on the other end of that line? Hey, it's me, Tony! Hey, Dave, how's it going? Hey, Tony, I've been sitting here in the studio, and I think, you know, let's just put out a record of songs of other people that made us feel good inside. We're in a transitional period, the zeitgeist, etc., etc., and right now, the world could use just a good group of songs that made us feel good inside. What do you say? Oh, cover album. Uh, yeah. uh, Brian Ferry's doing one of them right now. He's going to love this. <laughs> well, you know, Brian Ferry's always a day late in the cotton candy short. So let, we'll let the lawyers handle that. But, yeah, uh, you know, back in the, the day, it was always you and I at the club. And as we were leaving, Brian Ferry was coming in. I mean, I am, am I wrong here? Right, right. Or he'd be leaving as we'd be showing up uh, fashionably late, but one of the two. Exactly. And and so, you know, if we were to pick a handful of songs, I, I'd say, you know, it would be... Uh, let's think of some of the, the acts that you and I would be able to do justice to, and Brian Ferry would be coming in late on. So you're talking about some of the, the bands we used to see at the Ricky Tick. <laughs> For example, the... Uh, the Carrier Pigeon uh, Trio. Remember them? Mother Goose and the Rotten Eggs. They were great. Mother Goose and the Rotten Egg was very good, which always reminds me of the Breakfast Bonanza. Uh, I don't know what they were thinking naming themselves after breakfast, but it was pretty good either way. Uh, what about uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Pelvis? <laughs> they were great. You know, the, the James Bond craze is still going right now, and I would say, uh, you know... Octopussy. Oh, fantastic. What about uh, the uh, Orange Dreamsicle? They were great. It makes me hungry right now for a springtime treat. And that reminds me, remember the springtime treats? Oh, yeah, they were fantastic. They were fantastic. What about uh, Two Combs and a Shoe Shine? They were great. They reminded me of the foggiest London days, which then brings to mind the, uh, the weather report. The Weather Report was an actual band. Ah, uh, how about, uh, how about Peacoat Pablo? They were great. Pablo Picasso. Remember him? He was an artist. Oh, wow. Any of those bands would be great. You know, good luck to you. Have fun. Um, you know, I'm not going to be there, right? I'm, I'm busy. I've been, you know, I've been bouncing around Mark Bolin's studio for a while, as you well know, um, and hanging out a little bit, uh, you know, he's got, he's had some girls around. I've been hanging out with John Lennon. He's got this new girlfriend around, you know, hey, what can I say? Uh, Tony, you always tell me you're meeting some girl at some club. Are you to tell me right now at this place, at this time, in between the Beatles and the Beatles, which we'll do a cover song of, you're really going to steal another lady, and this lady's going to be John Lennon's girlfriend? You know, pretty ladies all the way around, and they, you know, they're all... You, you meet a lady one night at a club, what can I say? You know, and it's, it's, uh, she's lovely, she's lovely, respectable. Then you meet somebody, and then it's somebody else's girlfriend, and suddenly she's a pinup, you know what I'm saying? Good luck on your cover album, Dave. I'm sure it's going to be a humdinger. And remember the humdingers? They were fantastic. You should cover one of their songs. We're going to make Young Americans soon, and John Lennon's going to be on it. This is very depressing. Hello, listeners. 
My name is Beggarbot. I am a robot programmed to beg for scratch. The boys at Pod Like a Hole have hired me. Their podcast will always be free, but if you'd like to donate so they can buy better equipment, please visit patreon.com slash pod like a hole. They told me they love you whether you pay or not. It must be nice to love. That is a feeling I shall never know. That's about it. And then the cover, uh, guys, what do you think of the cover? It's, of the a, album? it's cool. I am a big fan of the cover. The cover is always the covers. I bought this originally on cassette from the dimple on Arden way. And the cover immediately jumped out of me. I've always liked this cover. It's uh it's David with some makeup on of his own face, kind of. And the model superstar Twiggy is the, uh, leaning up against him and she has her face done. You know, I'm not, are they swapped faces? Their faces look very interesting on this, this cover. No, I think it's just their faces are outlined, but there's not like yeah. a face swap happening. It looks like where they're wearing a mask of their own face. That's yeah. what it kind of looks like. Yeah. But they're both very feminine looking. So it's a yeah. cool cover. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely very, it looks iconic. Um, and uh, yeah, and, I mean, and having, having a model on a, the cover of an album called pinups, like a pinup girl. That's pretty yeah. cheeky. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in terms of uh, the critics, um, uh, Steven, do you have any, any background on this on what the critics were saying? I don't have any specific pull quotes, but the reviews that I did peruse were very middling to bad. Actually, it seemed like people kind of just had that. Ah, this sounds like they needed to put this out. It's okay. The original versions of these songs are better. Like I, if you were to uh, aggregate it, I'd say it got a two point five from the, the the general critical consensus. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of uh, what most critics seem to be saying. That it wasn't necessarily quite necessary for this album to even be a thing, but. Uh, it certainly overlooked based off of his whole catalog and where his career trajectory was going. It seemed just like inserted in there. Not, I wouldn't necessarily call it a cash grab because it's a, it's a fun experiment and that certainly Bowie is tipping his hat to people, his contemporaries. Um, but at the same time uh, from going from Aladdin saying directly into diamond dogs, I think would have been, it would have made more sense artistically but uh, having this kind of in between the two records is it's a, it's interesting in, in terms of what he's done throughout his career. Well, there are a couple parts on it. There are a couple parts on it where I do hear some future visions of where he was going with diamond dogs and young Americans. So I at least see how it, it kind of, it, 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 it was a, a stepping stone to what came next. You can see though, as a, as a fan of the time, like, like me, I never, I, this is the first time I've listened to it. Um, like Bowie is self-expression. That's his thing. And, 
Um, not that he hasn't done cover songs, but uh, an album full of covers, I could see, you know, myself, I was, I was weary, you know, weary of it. Um, uh, so I can see maybe why people were maybe set up to not, to not like it. Um, and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So we can talk about the tracks and see where we all fall on it though. All right. Well then let's go ahead and kick right into it then. Um, so track one kicks off with Bowie's cover of Rosalind, which was originally done by the pretty things. Let's hear a sample of that now. Hey listeners, we're going to do something a little bit different in this episode. Um, since it's all covers and we want you to be able to play along at home like we did, what we're going to do is we're going to play the original version of the song, but then when you hear this, we're going to switch over to Bowie's version so you can compare them. See? Fun! So that was Rosalind, um, and I don't know if either one of you had the opportunity. So what I did when I was going through, I created a playlist. So I started with the original version, and then I went into Bowie's version. And then I did, I I did the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So I could kind of compare and contrast and kind of determine which one I preferred. And as I go through, I'm going to actually tell you guys which one I actually preferred, one or the other. Um, it's a, it's not a bad song as it is, uh, whether we're talking about the pretty things version or David Bowie's version. Um, you can tell that, uh, the pretty things are kind of this gritty, more aggressive, uh, kind of pre-punk band. I mean, they definitely hew towards garage rock, uh, but you could definitely see a little bit more danger in them than, you know, say someone like Herman's Hermits. I've never heard of this band beforehand. Um, Bowie's version, you could definitely see the sense that he's trying to be a little bit more cocky with his singing style, um, kind of sneering like a punk would, I would say, uh, they didn't really tinker too much with the different sound. Um, I mean, all in all, I think I prefer the original a little more than Bowie's cover. Uh, what, I, what did you guys think of it? I, I agree. Um, the original is faster it's like it's significantly like toe tapping faster. Um, and it's a little noisier and I, I don't know if, and you guys can maybe let me know if there's a theme to this, but like, I don't know if it's just this album, but like there, there's a flat production quality to a lot of these songs, not all of them, but a lot of the songs it's flat. And the original one, it's not like there was some crazy production going on, but it was like, lo-fi and gritty and for that it had like yeah. this garage this garage rock kind of rawness to it that uh that i don't know made it hit a little bit harder um yeah that being said this is still one of the top tier songs on this album as far as it goes but i still think like in comparison 
it's flatter than the original and it's cleaner than the original. Um, it's not quite as Yeah, flat. it definitely has a sheen. It, it's not like an 80s sheen to it, but it's more polished and, like you said, flat. It, it seems right. like the production quality is definitely amplified um, because it was. I mean, the pretty things sound like they recorded this in their garage. Yeah. Um, but it worked for the, but it worked for it worked for that though. I don't know. It, you know it did. I mean? It did. Yeah. It did. And then once they pump it up and through kind of the uh, more advanced uh, machinery and equipment, it tends to uh, I don't know take away from some of the yeah. the the charm of the yeah. original. But yeah, there's a sneer to it, and it's a great opening track. It's super short. It just kind of shreds and Bowie even gets into it. Like he sneers, he screams a little bit. I mean, the song itself is like, um, it's just like, like immature love. You know, you, you're, 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 you go from love to hate to jealousy and back and forth. And that's this, that's the lyrics of the song essentially. Um, yeah, it's a fun little opener. Yeah. Steve, what do you think? Uh, two things. One, uh, as far as the production go and it's sounding flat, I think a lot of the production on this album sounds flat. I know they did it on purpose, but this album for good or for worse could just come across as like a live show in a lot of places to me. Um, I, I think that they really focus on just the, you know, the rocking out and not a lot of post-production. Yeah. Uh, there are some places that have some flourishes that I'll point out, but this is not one of them. Uh, the other is, is that I did make a playlist to do what you guys did and it didn't sink to the cloud. And so by the time I was out in the world, I didn't have time to put it together again. It was a very first world problem. So I will be leaning on you two to hear what you think of the other, the original versions of most of these songs where I don't know the originals by heart. Yeah. Well, uh, I would say, I would say in this in song, the original is one of the, the handful that I would say, listen to that. It's very cool. But yeah, go on. Okay. Uh, this, this one's okay. I, um, it didn't do a lot for me. I'll have more to say with the next song. All right. So let's go ahead and go into that next song, which is Here Comes the Night. I could see right out my window Walking down the street, my girl With another guy His arm around her Like it used to be with me Oh, it makes me So that was Here Comes the Night. Um, this song was not originally written by uh, Van Morrison or them. It was written by a gentleman by the name of uh, Burt Burns. Uh, he was an American songwriter in the 60s, record producer. Uh, he recorded, he uh, wrote Twist and Shout, uh, Peace of My Heart, Hang on Sloopy. So, uh, those so he types was of jumping songs. on a cigar and he was talking to Van Morrison and them. And, hey, boys, I got a song for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wait, he wrote, um, he wrote the Sloop John B that the Beach Boys did? No, no, no. He wrote okay. um, Sloopy, uh, Hang on. Hang on, yeah. Sloopy. Yeah. Okay. Um, but That's a, them. I'm sorry. 
the the Beach Boys uh, Sloop John B is a goddamn classic. But carry on. Oh, it's a great song. It's a great song. I'm sure that was a Brian Wilson joint. Um, but them uh, is Van Morrison's original band before he uh, went off solo. Uh, their big smash uh, first single that set the world on fire was uh, "Baby Please Don't Go," and I think "Here Comes the Night" was their follow up single uh, before they uh, eventually did. Um, I can't remember the name of the another big song that they did, but anyway, Gloria, there it is. Um, so Bowie covered here comes the night. Um, and he certainly sings it very similar to how Van Morrison sings it with a little bit more swooning. Um, and for whatever reason, they bring in a baritone saxophone. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting song and the, the original just kind of is jumpy. It, it feels, and then it slows down for the uh, ver, uh, choruses. Well, here comes the night. I mean, it's a staple in Van Morrison's um, current incarnation. Um, I actually prefer the original over Bowie. I think it's because Bowie's musical performance and just the saxophone I felt was kind of unnecessary, Interesting. but uh, what, what did I, you guys think? I actually think? am the opposite. And, um, I'm actually, uh, I don't, I rarely put it on, but I've been raised on some Van Morrison. So I'm kind of, uh, definitely open hearted to him. And the original is kind of cool. There's no bones about it. The hook on this song is the, the here comes the night part is catchy as hell. It's great. It's swooping. It's very good. And then the verses, and it's not Bowie's fault. It's not even Van Morrison's fault. The verses are strange. It's like, it's like talky, like, and then I was here, and then I was there. And it's like this, uh, this almost like talky stage production. Um, I, I just, I think the song drops in quality during the verses, but damn, those, those hooks are great. Uh, and I, I, I like both versions. This is one that I think production stands out, stands out more on pinups than the other songs that, I, well, than a lot of the other songs. Uh, Bowie is in full actor mode on this song. Um, and I like the addition of the saxophone. I, I, uh, enjoyed hearing it. I thought it was fun. Um, so I would say both the original is great, but this is a pretty solid rendition where Bowie makes it his own and does something a little different as far as what we define a good cover. So that's my take. I never have a problem with saxophone. I say the more saxophone, the better in almost every walks of life. If I'm getting to work, if I'm late, I want somebody to blast a saxophone at me. If I beat a video game, I want to have triumphant saxophone music. I always want more saxophone. And I think the the sax little mini sax solo in this song is one of the highlights of the album for me. Actually, this song is my favorite one on the album. Oh, there I, you go. Nice. Yeah, I, I really like the way it starts. Uh, Rosalind's end leads right into this. Uh, it kind of has like a guitar slide and David goes, ah, and it goes into it. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a pretty cool song. I, I do get where Eric's coming with the whole, like do the, do the, 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 part of the verses, but the pace of how the verses crash into the slowness of the chorus makes it pretty interesting for me. And um, overall, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of this song. Like I said, it's my favorite one off the album. Mm. I also get a bonus point because Deadsy did a they didn't do a straight cover for it, 
but they did a uh, one of their original songs. They open it up with a uh, "Here comes the night" in ultra slowed down Deadsy uh, speed, and uh, it sounds very influenced by this. And as I mentioned on our B side episode, my grandfather was a big Van Morrison fan, and while we didn't listen to this band often, we did listen to Van Morrison quite a bit. And similar to what Eric was saying, he does have a place in my heart for nostalgic purposes. I think a lot of kids our age had were subjected to Van Morrison. There are worse artists than Van Morrison that your parents or grandparents could uh, make you listen. Oh shit! To. Just listen to Astral Weeks. Uh, that's a fantastic little track or a little album. And uh, oh, baritone sax on this is not Bowie, even though he can honk on that saxophone just fine. It's Ken Fordman. There you are. Yep, there it is. All right, so. That was track two. Let's go ahead and bring it on to I Wish You Would. Uh, this was originally done by the Yardbirds. So that was I Wish You Would, and I want to correct myself. The Yardbirds performed it, but the actual singer and songwriter was a blues harmonica player by the name of Billy Boy Arnold. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Yardbirds rendition is the one that Bowie essentially cribbed from. Um, uh, Wasn't the the Yardbirds like a super group? Yeah, so not necessarily at the time because they were all kind of cutting their teeth. Uh, But you had uh, Jeff Beck, uh, Eric Clapton. Uh, just to name a few. Um, and of course, uh, Led Zeppelin was born out of a newer version of the Yardbirds. They were going to be called the new Yardbirds. And because uh, Jimmy Page was also a part of the Yardbirds as well. Right. Um, so at the time, they weren't necessarily uh, well-known people. They just, this is kind of the minor leagues for all of them to really go and flourish elsewhere. Um but to that point, I've never been, uh, you know, because of, you would think of all the talent and, uh, that was existing within this band, you would think that there would be a bigger band that more people would talk about, you know, like akin to the Beatles for crying out loud. Um, in some circles, maybe they well, are as big. For one thing is that, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, I mean, to step on you, but for Go one for thing, it. Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton and, um, Jimmy Page, they all like pass the baton to each other. I don't know if they were ever really in the band at the same time. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like as soon as one would leave, the other guy would join. Right. So, um, but they're a huge, huge blind spot for me. Like I've never, uh, studied them. I've never explored in many other stuff. It's mostly like whenever I hear a song and I find out later that it's the R birds, I'm like, Oh, Oh, who knew? Um, but same. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I attribute them to this like genre of music that my dad would always be into, which was like the English blues. Like I think it's a, they were definitely co-opting a fair amount of, um, you know, like American black culture uh, for their songs. Um, 
obviously when I was growing up, I didn't care about that. Now, now I, I do. And I just don't like Eric Clapton. I just really fucking don't like him. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I mean, there are some songs that I feel are undeniably catchy, uh, but I still think that he's just, I think he's a little overrated. Um, when I look, listen to his guitar playing, I just never have thought like, what's so special? Um, I don't know. I mean, he's a good yeah. guitar player. Yeah. I'll give him that much. He's yeah. very technically proficient, but I've just <clears> never <throat> been like nothing for me about Clapton's playing like stands out, you know? Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, but I think, uh, I think the Yardbirds did, you know, I think for the time they were doing something that was interesting. And I mean, obviously like Led Zeppelin did a lot of blue stuff. Rolling Stone did a, did a lot of blue stuff. Like, that was a thing that was going on in um, in the UK at the time for the for these bands. And they were they were using a lot of these old blues songs. Um, uh, this one in particular, uh, I actually think you know Bowie kind of goes a little interesting on this one. Um, there's some like little funny little riff flourishes, and uh, uh, the production is still pretty flat, um, but it's not it's not uninteresting. I'll say that. Um, I agree with you. I do actually prefer the cover over the original. I think that Mick Ronson's guitar work is just pure gold on this one. Uh, I really enjoy the guitar punctuating the vocals. I think that's really fantastic. Um, it's uh, it, it's definitely a highlight for me. I actually do do really think that they did a really good job on this one. I know that Pushing Ahead of the Dame uh, found it to be uh, hollow as a drum, but I, I found it to be actually pretty interesting. I, I enjoyed it. Agree. Yeah, it's all right. It reminds me of Ultimate Dad Rock, like you guys are saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I love Led Zeppelin, like nobody's business. But the Yardbirds, the Yardbirds, sir, are no Led Zeppelin uh, by a long shot. No. Um, yeah, they're a blind spot for me too. As is Jeff Beck in general. I feel like I should give Jeff Beck a day in court one of these days. But uh, you know, and, and but, but what you know what Eric said is kind of true. But I would say about the Rolling Stones and Jimmy Page and a lot of these other guys, they didn't keep it a secret of who their influences were. I felt that many of them wore it on their sleeves and paid homage, and you know they weren't trying to pass off that they came up with a lot of these no, riffs. Tor- uh, no, that's true. Yeah, yeah, but that's a, that's a different separate discussion. But anyhow, yeah, you know this 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 track is pretty good. Um, the guitar kind of fills in for the harmonica. Compared, to, I did listen to the original on this yeah. one, and uh, the the harmonica is much more pronounced on the original version. I think the guitar work does some of the harmonica work on Bowie's version. Um, there is harmonica on it, but the guitar kind of takes precedence. Um, it kind of reminds me of a song that maybe Queens of the Stone Age or or ZZ Top would would do definitely ZZ Top. Yeah, I could definitely see like yeah. that Texas barbecue type. Um, sound. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Oh God. Yeah. Yep. And hey, man, don't speak ill. But I think I probably said this before. We don't speak ill no, of the top. No, no, no. I will top some like some of their okay. records are fucking amazing. Their early stuff is just yes. just built like a brick shit house. So good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Just we're all on the same page there. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, back to how earlier I said I like the drums in this record. The the drumming really starts shaking the room towards the end of this track. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it, it it really really does some good 
some good pound and drum work. You got a good point. Like even on the songs that aren't as good as the original, at the very least, the originals didn't have Ainsley Dunbar drumming, and he's a fan. He's fantastic. So he's very enjoyable. Yeah. All right. So what's next? Next, we've got track four. Uh, See Emily play, uh, which was originally done by Pink Floyd. First record, Piper the Gates of Dawn, or Mark? Am I wrong? Is that what? Is that just a no? Single? You're right. All of a um, okay. Yes, Arnold Lane was the one that was the single that wasn't on Piper. Okay. So it was yeah, because there there are some early, some early well-known songs that were just singles. That Quick was not one of them. The Pink Floyd super fans, Mark and Steve, uh, pretty much immediately after recording, texted me to let me know it was not originally on Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It was released as its own single, but then on the American. Uh, release of Piper of the Gates of Dawn. It was like wedged yeah, in there. Yeah, see, Emily Play was off Piper of the Gates of Dawn. I really enjoy this version of the song. I almost like it more than the original. I do like the original. But this version dials down the insanity a little bit. Uh, the original version has these... Uh, the, the, the it sounds like the, toy pianos, there's right? These, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they're the toy, the toy pianos and also... The sea Emily play. Like it really, really, really has like a Monty Python yeah. quality yeah. to it. I think this is more of a well done, not straight ahead. It's a little bit less acid, acid tinged, but still, it's a not as soaked in acid <laughs> as Pink Floyd was. And it's the, poor it's Sid little, Barrett, God knows, not it's many a people. Acid cigarette. It's a little acid were, cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little acid cigarette to whereas uh, Sid was jumping in All a vat right. so full of acid. Not, not for me, um, but for the listeners, of course. Can you guys just kind of give us the uh, the Cliff Notes version of what makes the Sid Barrett era, era of Pink Floyd different? Yeah. Uh, the Sid Barrett era was where they started, and he's the... I guess him and Roger Waters were more the founders of the band than yeah. anybody. And it, they started out as a... 
kind of like a garage rock band, garage rock psych band. And it was before they discovered Prague. They were much more psychedelic garage rock, just like the song sounds. And th- this album is, is really much, th- their first album is very much in this style. And it was pretty damn popular. And by the time they got around to doing the second album, Sid Barrett was starting to lose his mind, unfortunately, and having huge mental issues. And midway through the second album, he was already kind of replaced by David Gilmore out of uh, necessity, if anything. And that's when they started going to the more blues-based progressive version of the So Sid Barrett Barrett was only in an album and a half? Yeah. um, There's only one song off of the second record, Saucer Full of Secrets, that has Sid Barrett actually have a writing credit. And that's Jug Band Blues, which is the last song on the album. But Steve is 100% accurate. Piper at the Gates of Dawn, um, the guy was a massive acid user. And he was also probably schizophrenic is what a lot of people think. Um, Sid Barrett uh, passed away in 2006 of pancreatic cancer. Um, He released two um, solo records in uh, 1969 and 1970. Um, They may have been released both in 1970. And then he, and by 1972, he was already fading into obscurity. He, he did not want anything to do with the musical industry. And he, his story kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Aaron North, who we talked about, the guitar player for Nine Inch Nails, mm-hmm. the live guitar player from 2005 for the With Teeth, about just, he was a very dynamic individual. Um, he clearly just was just really too involved with the drug scene. Um, and obviously Pink Floyd has created uh, a lot of uh, great records based on the idea of someone losing and going through a mental breakdown. Uh, and the album Wish You Were Here, uh, released after Dark Side of the Moon in 1975, um, it essentially is a, uh, it's a tribute album um, to Sid Barrett. Uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond is a uh, it's a tribute song directly to Sid because they're all really, really good friends. I mean, they really tried to get his act together, um, but they just knew that if they wanted to carry on under Pink Floyd, he wasn't going to be uh, able to do it by going on tour. They even offered to maybe make him like a Brian Wilson character where he's just in the studio, but then in the studio, he would just be equally erratic. And so they're just like, we can't do this anymore. So they kicked him out. Um, and then, uh, uh, David Bowie um, has gone on record saying that his favorite version of Pink Floyd was the Sid years. Um, he really liked the just the uh, esoteric psychedelic um, artness of it all, and uh, he didn't really cotton too much to the uh, to the later progressive rock stuff. Um, and he even famously in uh, two thousand four, um, I. Uh, 2004, 2006, when Dave Gilmore was doing a uh, live tour, solo live tour, uh, David Bowie came on stage and they sang Arnold Lane, which was a uh, very old Sid Barrett song. It was the very first Pink Floyd single, actually. And they did a duet together. Um, So anyways, see Emily play. Um, uh, So there, there is basically your Reader's Digest version of Pink Floyd. Um, and you could definitely tell that Sid Barrett was a, a direct influence on Bowie from his singing style to kind of the overall aesthetic. Um, I don't think Bowie really got into the acid scene so much. He was more of a cocaine and heroin man myself. Um, but <laughs> uh, 
I, you know, personally, I actually do prefer the original, but it is super close because I do have to appreciate this is the one that Bowie was really trying to do something of his own. I like Mike Garson really kind of doing the cat on the piano technique um, that he's known to do on this one. Um, you certainly see uh, the choir of ghouls as pushing ahead of the dame refers it. Um, and uh, they kind of liken it to the technique used on the laughing gnome. Uh, a song we have yet to cover on this particular part of our show. Well, that, that, um, that little, he was one of, you know, Bowie was, would not shy away from using those little monster voices in a, right. a good, like breakdown, even in the early era. Yeah. Right. But I, I mean, I still, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, the, uh, I, I think that the, um, the sense of whimsy that had, Sid Barrett had definitely David Bowie had, uh, seemingly play definitely yeah like laughing gnome that kind of you know uh, english storybook stuff uh, david bowie lapped that up and that was sid barrett's uh, bread and butter and yeah they were definitely uh coming from us i definitely see the influence there and one other aspect musically of the song that just it really has a rocking riff man that don't know don't 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 no, don't no, don't no, before it goes into the uh the yeah. verses yeah you can't you can't beat it it's uh i like both versions quite a bit eric uh it, how do you feel about it being the the non-floyd hit on the song show. on here it's the most in my opinion it's the most creative um and i know it's all the source material the source material is probably and i listened to the, the 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 original song and it's very creative as well um but I, I liked it. And you could, uh, you almost like connecting to our last episode with, uh, with, with, uh, remember that bonus track off heathen, the Daniel Johnston inspired one. Yeah. Like almost uh, like Bowie Jackson, but kind of, Bowie's kind of like definitely inspired by people struggling with mental illness that could still like, you know, make something interesting. That's that, that, that's explorable and cohesive to some people. And, and, uh, I see that in this song a little bit and I love the production. Like this is the one that stands out production wise as being something unique and creative. So I'm a big fan of his cover of the song. Interesting side note of this era of Pink Floyd and the subject matters of this podcast is that on the one and done ogre from skinny puppy side project that he did with Martin Atkins called RX they covered Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd's Scarecrow. Oh, yeah. Yep. The black and green scarecrow that everyone knows stood with a bird on his head and straw everywhere he didn't care. He stood in a field where barley grows. His head did no thinking, his arms did unmove. That's not a bad side project. It has some really excellent drumming by Martin Atkins on there. Um, but uh, yeah, as for this one, um, I, I uh, appreciate Bowie really um, trying to do something original and also by also tipping his hat to Barrett, I think is, is kind of sweet. Um, so you guys are ready to move on to the next one, right? Yes. All right. So let's go into track five. Everything's all right. It was originally done by the Mojos. Oh, little baby. I never knew I could. And don't you know that everything's all right. Everything's all right. 
Uh, this track on this one was a big hit start out. in uh, in Britain. Um, dropped in 1964, um, and the Mojos were, I mean, in a way, kind of. Uh, I mean, they weren't a one-hit wonder. They kept going. Obviously, eventually, uh, Ainsley Dunbar joined them. Um, but they were from Liverpool, and they were definitely when they started. They were definitely trying to. I would say. Enjoy the success of the Beatles. Let's just say that. Um, uh, this particular song is a, oh, it's a fun little, fun little track from that era. Um, but uh, it, the song itself is, um, it, Bowie's version doesn't stand out too much to me. Um, but the, the drumming is fantastic. So um, that's really kind of all I got on this one. Yeah, the drumming on this one is quite something. I think that uh, this is one that I actually prefer the cover based on the excellent drumming from Ainsley. Um, and <laughs> apparently, uh, now this is some of the research that I uncovered uh, from Pushing Ahead of the Dame, but uh, Bowie told Woody Woodmansey that um, he wasn't going to be part of the sessions oh. on <laughs> Woody's oh wedding God. day. <laughs> he fired him on his own wedding day. Uh, so uh, Ainsley Dunbar was uh, apparently, he had played on the original Mojo's track. So there is a big possibility that he probably suggested covering it. Um, but really just they're a cohesive um, uh, unit from Nick Ronson, Mike Garson, and Trevor Boulder. I think that they, they do it well. Um, and, yeah, this is actually not my favorite song on the record, but He's it's got certainly a, really a highlight good for me on backing this record. band on this album. It's just unfortunate when they don't get the shine. And uh, at least on this track, uh, at least Ronson and uh, and Ainsley get to shine a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's not much else to be said. It's uh, um, the original definitely sounds a little paper thin, um, but I, I do prefer the cover on this one. A, a Beatles trailing act, um, um, you know, but I, I'm still kind of fascinated from that, that whole British invasion era. So right on, right on. But that brings us to the, one of the biggest of the British invasion, the who. Yeah. I can't explain.
All right. So the Who. Uh, this is um, so full disclosure. The Who is one of those bands that I feel that I should give more time and attention to, but they're a band that I, for whatever reason, I just I can't get into them. Um, I do like some of their classic songs. They are catchy, um, but I always felt that they were a just a. I don't know. Something was off about them. It was like if the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin uh, were put into a soup together and the who is the taste that you would get. Mm. Um, That's how I kind of interesting. uh, I mean, and I know I'm probably underselling them a little bit by saying or I guess minimizing their their importance in rock history. Um, because you know, Keith Moon was a fantastic drummer. Um, I really do like his whirlwind drumming style. Um, Pete Townsend, it seems like, you know, despite what I feel about the man himself, I just feel that his guitar playing and who he is is kind of, it's exhausting. Um, (laughs) you know, I just, I feel that I, I I don't know. Um, I would, I would give who I give who a little bit more credit. I actually don't, I don't see them in Led Zeppelin universe at all. They are much more of a simple, simple songwriters. Sure. Um, they don't really, I mean, not to say like you listen to like some tracks off Tommy or, or whatever, like they, they get expansive, but ultimately their songs are very, very proto, not proto punk, but in the sense that there's not a lot of chords involved. Like they, they pick their little universe for that song and they make a very simple song off of it. And Pete Townsend shreds the hell out of it. And either him or Daltrey, you know, sings some uh, very snarly lyrics over it. And, uh, you know, sometimes it works. I Here's why, to your point, Mark, I think they get boring faster than the other groups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only I, reason I threw Led Zeppelin in there is because in their later works, when they're doing like Bob O'Reilly and some of the stuff off Tommy and Quadrophenia, they tend to get a little bit more um, heady in that sense. And sure, so sure. in the early days, I feel that they're definitely just stripped, just streamlined. And that's where I kind of feel like the Rolling Stones comparison, just that British London, you know, the, you know, it's the British wave, you know? And then the later works when they start to kind of go into arenas is where I still, like that's where the bombacity and, you know, um, the larger than life stuff comes in. But I would say that they, (laughs) their, their canvas is much smaller than their, than their other like contemporaries that could fill it with bombacity. You know what I mean? Like, and what I'm saying is, yes, it's a, they're limited in what they can do, but they didn't care. And they still tried, <laughs> which is, yeah. which is, which is kind of fun. Um, but I, I, I'm not necessarily like, uh, an apologist, you know, for the who I, they, they, uh, they had some great songs and they, um, they took a very limited approach to this rock they were doing and they pushed it as far as they could push it. And sometimes they push it past their abilities. And I think that's what we're saying. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 But yeah, but, but I, but there's a rawness to their early stuff that I think was super influential and, um, and I think deserves to have some respect. And, uh, this particular song I think is great. Their version of, I can't explain. I mean, it's great. And I, I don't know if it's me 
or I don't know if it's me or if it's like a history of watching like Wes Anderson movies and a who song just rocks at the right, just the right time where I feel like, you know, a, a connection to it. But this song sounds like a ultimate who song. It's a, it's a great classic who track. It is. Yeah. And that's why uh, not to step on you a little bit, but I feel that Bowie completely decided he listened to the song and either he decided I'm going to fuck with Pete Townsend because everything that was great about the Who version, Bowie decided, I'm going to just go ahead and make it a pretty bad rendition of it. It's so garbage. Yeah. Bowie's version is garbage. And I'm it's sorry. Bad. Yeah. I'm sorry to speak ill of the man, but they slow it down like almost half time. Like it's yeah. almost half as slow as the original. Um, none of the musicians get to do anything fun. At some point, the uh, Ainsley gets to do some cool fills. Um, yeah where he's able to match some Keith moon stuff, but Bowie just sounds like he woke up in and, uh, is, uh, just woke up from a deep sleep and, uh, started trying to sing. He's just bored as hell. Like, what's the point? It, I almost think you're right. Like he's had a contentious relationship with Pete Townsend for almost his whole career. It's almost like he was like, Hey Pete, you were an asshole to me when I was a kid. Uh, so, you know, now I'm going to just, absolutely twist twist one off on this song yeah it's 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 a really bad cover yeah i'm not a fan steve (laughs) Uh Uh uh-oh here he comes the pinch hitter let's hear what you have to say this version's okay i don't dislike it as much as eric it is slowed down quite a bit to a point where i wonder why they made that decision uh, I don't know if it was by accident or if it was to set themselves apart from the original. Um, there's some vocalizations at the end that I, I enjoy some, uh, some, Ooh, ah, vocalizations, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. And like Mark said, I feel like I should be a bigger who fan than I am. But at this point in my life, I'm almost 40. Eh, I think I've gone this long, you know, uh, before I even become more familiar with the Who's catalog, I'll probably double down and make sure I know every Queen song by heart. <laughs> that's a, no, that's a better investment of your time. But do listen to the original version of this, Steve. It is leaps and bounds better than Bowie's. It's actually. Oh, I've fan- heard it. I've heard it. It's one of their more is, well-known yeah. songs. I've, I've yeah, heard it. It's before. a well-known. Yeah. Yeah. No, and the Who, like, yeah, they've got some some hits that are fun, but I just. I guess I just haven't, you know, sat down and just focused on quadrophenia so, like I should. And I don't want to. So there was a um, live concert of the Who's Tommy that I grew up with that my dad recorded off TV that we watched often. Um, and uh, that's a ridiculous, I mean, that's a ridiculous uh, rock opera. Um a boy that's been abused uh, is deaf, dumb, and blind, but he can sure play a mean pinball. That's a good song. Uh, yeah. And uh, Phil Collins plays his uh, sexually abusive uncle. That's right. Uncle in Ernie. the movie. <laughs> yeah. I always remember that. Anyways. Phil Collins kind of looks like a shitty uncle. Yeah. But you know what? You know what? Phil Collins, uh, if you've ever watched a documentary about um, about uh, the uh, Genesis he everybody loves him there was all this contention in the band but everybody loved phil collins he actually seems like a pretty decent human being yeah so there's that 
I know there was, uh, yeah, no, I don't want to get bogged down, but real fast. I remember a couple years ago, Phil Collins is pretty humble about his career as well, saying that some of the songs he, he apologizes for some of the songs that he's sent out in the world. And, uh, you know, he, he, you don't really see that sense of, I don't know, modesty from a lot of superstars. He seems like a pretty grounded individual, but I'm not a Phil Collins fan by any means, but I, I appreciate some of his, his work. But The Who, for whatever reason, you know, my generation, that's a song that's been played to death. And I think... Uh, Green Day. Green Day. Well, not only Green Day. Green Day. I was going to mention... They oh, they did cover that, I know. But so did Danny Tanner on an episode of Full House. And so, like... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Danny Tanner? Like, Correct. like Bob you're talking Saget. about... Bob Saget. Bob Saget. Exactly. It wasn't, even, it wasn't even Jesse. It wasn't even Uncle Jesse. I think it was for uh, some talent show or something like that. And it was just... I, I, this is coming from the guy that has probably watched every episode of the original Full House series because I, you know, when it's on syndicated TV after school, what else are you going to watch without any sort of cable? Uh, I, I think I'm right there with you. So, uh, yeah. And, and for whatever reason, The Who, I, I feel like, is just a band that uh, the Danny Tanners of the dads of the world are just big Who fans. So it's fair. Yeah. It's fair. Um, all right, so we've done it. Let's talk about track seven. Uh, so Friday on my mind. Let's hear a little bit of that So, Friday on My Mind. Uh, this was a 1966 song by an Australian rock group called the Easy Beats. Um, we've got a sort of a working man's anthem. Um, and uh, you've got this kind of na 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 And they've described it as if it, like someone's riding the train. Um, you know, Monday morning feels so bad. Coming Tuesday, I feel better. You know, everyone's working for the weekend, as the boy said. <laughs> so it's just kind of in the vein of that. Um, you're just working through the week, just trying to get to Friday. And that way you can start your, your weekend uh, without having any work. Um, so 
I think it's a tie for me between the cover and the original. I think Bowie's singing style is kind of amusing, and that guitar riff is super catchy. Um, I it's it's you got Bowie trying to do his little soul croon thing going on, um, but I I don't know. I think that uh, the Easy Beats um, is great, um, but you know uh, <laughs> I think it's a tie for me. It's Ooh. a catchy song. I, I would say, I really would say, say. it's a, yeah, it's one of the weird ones on there. Um, the Mercy's, Mer- wait, no, not the Mercy. That's the next track. Easy, uh, the Easy the Beats, Beats, yeah. The Easy Beats, uh, their music and production, I think, is better. It sells the song better. But Bowie's vocals, for once, he's <laughs> he's like energized by this song. He does a pretty pretty good performance on this track. Um, yeah. The uh, Bowie's backing band doesn't do a lot more for me, and the flat production does not do a lot more for me than the original. But um, it's uh, it's lower tier, but it's it's not despicable. I don't know. It's got its moments. Yeah, I think it's a. Uh, I actually like this song quite a bit. I think that the uh, the drums really yeah do a good job. The in the in the beginning, especially, <clears throat> you got that. Something blah da 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 da, da dun da dun, and then when it, it 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 gets going, it gets going, it gets going, and then it slows down into that like groovy verse part where the you know, uh, uh the, the the verse has like an easy going rhythm to it, and there's all these crooning bowies in the background that I think is actually some some good production work for this yeah. album. They do some overdubs that I think uh, make it have a little bit more depth. And when it gets into the chorus, the tonight, da 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 tonight, it kind of gets into a rock mode to where you can kind of see where he's going with Diamond Dogs. I think uh, there's a, there's a few things in this 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 cover that work for me, that make it at least interesting yeah. to me. And it reminds me that uh, I would love to hear David Bowie. He can't do it now, but I would have loved to hear his version of Friday I'm in Love by The Cure. <laughs> yeah, that'd have been a good one. I could see him doing it too. Um, all right. Um, so let's go ahead and go into the next track, which is Sorrow.
which was originally done by the Mercies. Let's hear Bowie's version. So that was Sorrow. Um, and uh, Stephen was wise enough to show me a uh, the way of where to find a YouTube performance of this. I have no idea. It doesn't look like an official music video. It looks like something that you would see on like a variety show. Um, and it, it's a good time. Um, this is probably my favorite song off the record. Um, this was probably also the only song that was a single off of this album. And it was. Um, this song, I do prefer the cover over the original. And uh, it, it almost really does feel it's a Bowie song. It doesn't feel like it could have been done by anyone else. Um, when I was doing my research, apparently... Uh, this covers album was released on the same day that Brian Ferry of Roxy music was going to release a covers album. And apparently uh, Brian Ferry was pretty annoyed with David Bowie for doing <laughs> this very thing, creating a, a covers record. Of course, Bowie was doing a little bit more, um, I guess not as popular artists, whereas Brian Ferry, uh, I can't remember the name of his album. Um, uh, these foolish things. So, um, Brian Ferry, Ferry was mostly doing covers of like the big standards of like Elvis and like names that you would recognize like in middle America. And when listening to the song, after hearing some of that background, um, I almost think, think that Bowie is even trying to sing like Brian Ferry in this song. Um, you could probably keep me a little bit more honest, Eric, because I know you, of, you, of all people of the three of us, you're the Roxy music guy. Um, I know that you guys well, definitely that, talked about it. More, yeah. It's only a more recent development for me. Right. Um, your wife is definitely yeah. more into right. it than, than you, right. but she's no, the one. I, that I, could, I could see it. I could see it. And you know, they both have their own thing. They kind of going on, like they have their own voice. It's not traditionally like good, but they can hit the notes and then Brian Ferry goes into more like of a, a warbly thing with his voice that I think this song would lend itself well to. Um, he does good covers. He has a specifically he has an album of Bowie covers and not Bowie. God damn it. Dylan covers that um, he still performs live. Like when I saw him live, they they still played, you know, one of those tracks off that. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, that that is funny. I, I could see them probably. They both kind of broke around the same time. Um, both dabbled in glam rock. Both, you know, I, I, I could see I could see there be a little bit of competition there. Um, and I would love to hear uh, Brian Ferry do this song. Um, but I actually agree. This is one of the stronger tracks. It makes sense. They made a single out of it. It's one of the few that Bowie makes his own and the production pops on the song. Yeah. I mean, it's it's there. The mix is perfect. You can hear everything really well. Um, and, uh, you know, they're apparently, um, I always talk about it when I hear it, but Bowie is a master of just shredding on the acoustic guitar and you hear him playing his 12 string on this, which is, has a very unique sound, um, cause you're playing two octaves at once, essentially. Um, so that's cool to hear. Uh, yeah, this is a, the song's a blast and the video is great. The video is, uh. 
Bowie in a suit coming out and singing while there's a chess game going on. And then like a couple girls with long sticks that are pushing people on the chessboard that have their own instruments. And uh, it's a very, just kind of a cool live creation. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah. And this, the, the sax solo in the video is fantastic. Uh, fantastic. If I remember correctly, the saxophone player is a mannequin who comes alive to play the sax solo. And then he goes into a mannequin form again when he's done. Um, yeah, I really like this cover. I like the phasing and the delay on the uh, during the second verse with the the Bowie vocals. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? On the second verse through, there's like some delay effects to where by the time he's done singing the words, the next verse is started, but then he, they kind of pull like sure. an edge delay effect. Oh, that's great. Yeah, where yeah, the vocals great. overlap yeah, each great. other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they really do. And to Roxy Music. Uh, to bring them up. So I think some of the production value on this, this song reminds me of that, uh, that Eric, that album Eric had me listen to that. The I for adore. Your ple- for your uh, pleasure. For, yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's some tonal qualities on this cover that remind me of Roxy music on that album. So I, I dig it. I think it says, if you're to listen to one song off this album, even though I think track two is my favorite, this one is probably that song. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's certainly, I mean, I think we can all agree that, as much as we love Bowie, the lyricist, the performer production plays a huge part in selling his craft. Yeah. And this is the best produced song on here for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Oh, good. And it also, it also kind of has a young American, young American vibe to it. I think it really does. Yeah. We're, we're on our way to that, to that, that, that soulful crooning blue eyed soul. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's go into track nine, uh, which is Don't Bring Me Down, and it's not by ELO, it is uh, once again done by The Pretty Things. prefer the ELO version yeah. myself. Ah. Or maybe or maybe a cover of any Bachman Turner overdrive. Takes your business, exactly. Um, so for me the uh, with Rosalind, I preferred the Pretty Things version. On this one, I actually do prefer the cover. And it's largely due to the fact because the MVP on this track is 
Ainsley Dunbar. Um, oh boy, yeah. You know, hell yeah, excellent drumming. Um, if you listen to the original, um, it sounds super thin, and the drums are like barely in the mix. Here, they like are something else. Um, it's it's definitely for me another highlight on the album. It's not my favorite song, but I feel that Bowie definitely like put a little bit more wattage into it. I would I would back that up a hundred percent. I would say um, I think Rosalind is a better song if you go by original versions. I like the Pretty Things version a lot better than their version of this, but I like Bowie's version of this better than Pretty Things one hundred percent. And the drums the drums kick. Bowie sounds interested. Um, he hasn't decided to tone it tone it down a half bar tempo. It uh, yeah, it's, it just stays thumping. Um, pushing ahead the dame, uh, gave, you know, said basically like, uh, if you took out the harmonica and added another guitar, you'd have a punk record. And I could kind of see that it, it, it treads, it treads, yeah. it's fast, it's quick and dirty and it treads. It's, it's great. Yeah. Steven. It's, it's pretty good. It's okay. Like I said, I would have rather have had ELO or BTO. <laughs> the next What's song. the next song? It's coming back around to the Yardbirds. Uh, let's listen to Bowie's version of Shapes of Things. Shapes of things before my eyes Just teach me to despise Shapes of Things. Uh, this one, I'm not a big fan of uh, Bowie's singing choice. Uh, so actually, I do prefer the original. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think that when Eric was talking about theater earlier, this is definitely Bowie in performance mode, a little bit too much yeah. for my taste. Yeah. It's bad. It's really bad. Guys, it's really, really bad. Um. Rod Stewart sang the song with a Jeff Beck group in 1968, uh, uh, which obviously was a carryover from the Yardbirds. Um, and Bowie's just, I, I all, all, honestly, like, you know, a for effort for Bowie for trying to give it all his might, but the song is stale. Um, Ronson is doing some pretty good guitar work, especially during the solo, but, it's not enough to save the song. The rest of it, 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 it just thunks along. Um, bad track. It's a bad track. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else to, to add there, Stephen, or do you in agreement there? Yeah, you know, the second half of this album, actually, for me, I kind of yeah. was checking my watch. So, <laughs> All right, so again. let's go ahead and speed things up by going into Any Way, Anyhow, Anywhere. <laughs> Going away, we are 
So back to The Who. Um, we don't really need to relitigate what we think about The Who on this one. Um, I actually do prefer the cover on this one a little bit more. Um, I think that, once again, Ainsley Dunbar kind of uh, runs a little laps around Keith Moon. Um, I think that uh, Keith Moon can be a little sloppy and just tries to do a little too much um, with with his drumming style, and I feel that this is a little bit more focused. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the original song anyways, so the source material is not something... I mean, I think I've felt like this song has been uh, used in, like, cellular commercials. Like, Was this song in, Ru- in Rushmore? It could have been in Rushmore, yeah. but I want to say it was in, like, a Verizon commercial for crying out loud. You know, so it's just... It, I don't know. It's it is what it is. I prefer the cover, but I don't really like the song so much. Um, but it's not bad. I mean, Bowie Bowie definitely at least tried to show up to to this song more so than uh, I can't explain. Um, so at least he he's not trying to fuck around with the arrangement as much on this one. But there it is, Eric. What do you what do you think on this one? Oh. It's probably the the one person who a, likes the Who, you know. Well, I, I, I it's more of a respect for I respect the quick and dirty, uh, simple songwriting of the Who more than I actually listen to their their shit. I hope that comes across. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess I, I I guess there's there there's a place for that 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 didn't exist in the seventies the the uh, where things got a little things got out there in a great way got very proggy and and uh they were they were a quick quick and dirty band that that tried to catch up and didn't have the chops and i find it fascinating um this particular song the original is fine i would say you are right that ainsley is killing it on the drums and be and even surpassing keith moon um there is a back and forth on the original version between Pete Townsend and, and Keith moon that does not exist uh, as far as the guitar and drums. Um, 
there's a back and forth that does not exist in the in the in the remake that you know yeah i think sets it back a little bit um you know that being said it's uh it's fine it's a fine little cover um but uh it's not going to sell anybody on the who and it's not going to sell anybody on bowie's covering the who so there you go steven anything dad I concur with both of you. Let's talk about the last track, which I like more, by The Kinks. All right. Where have all the good times gone? I mean, that's the question that Bowie's going to try to answer in this version that we're going to listen to right now. version and on this version that guitar riff that that gets me going every time i'm a i i'm a fan of the original song not a huge kinks guy but i do like the kinks i had a couple of the records but uh i i am a fan of this this version of it and the original what do you guys think i would think of all the bands that have been british invasion and I'm sorry I keep bringing it back to this, but Wes Anderson aligned. I say the kinks are the most twee out of all of them and in a great way because it implies they're doing the British invasion rock, but there's also the thoughtfulness and uh, uh, and a poeticness to the to the lyrics that I, I really do appreciate. I, I'm also a, I also enjoy the kinks. I'm not saying I'm a kinks fan, but uh, I think Steve, you showed me that the <laughs> We should have talked about it on the B side. That Murder City Devils cover of Demon Alcohol. It's just called Alcohol. Is, uh, yeah, it's just called Alcohol. Oh, uh, Demon Alcohol. Yes, Oh, Demon Alcohol. Sad memories that I can't recall. Something, 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 something. Oh, Demon Alcohol. It's so good. It's so good. And the original is great. Um, the Kinks are are lovely. They're, they're, they were a lovely band. Like a, They're like the Who, but a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more poetic. Um, this particular song is about somebody kind of coming to terms with getting older and actually empathizing with the generation that came before them. It's kind of like the anti-who, like the sneer is gone and they kind of appreciate uh, history and, and the people that have been through it. Um, this song itself, uh, I'm not going to say they do anything better than the kinks in this, but it is a pleasant closing track. and That's the best I can say about it. Yeah, and um, actually, David Bowie did also cover Waterloo Sunset later in his life. I don't know what it was for. It might have just been a, a put on the internet, but he definitely did cover Waterloo Sunset. So the Kinks, for me, um, I feel like it's a band that uh, a lot of my favorite acts and artists tend to always cite the Kinks as either very influential or just an influence, or they're just fans of the of the band. Um, I, I've listened to things here and there. Um, I've never really, uh, felt enamored by what I've been uh, shown, but I also feel like they're 
perfectly respectable for what they were doing in the time and the place. Um, what also fascinates me is obviously the the story between the Davies brothers about how they fucking hated each other and would fight. Um, so that's always kind of interesting to uh, to hear. Um, or I, I'm fascinated by that by those times of behind the music type things. Um, <laughs> the original exactly, Oasis. Exactly right. Um, exactly. Oasis didn't do anything original. <laughs> Oasis didn't do anything original. Even Oasis's whole uh, uh, brand <laughs> was ripped off from the kinks and all the sounds. Even their, dra- the even their drama, their drama was fake. Yeah. It was ripped off. Yeah. That's fucking by the way, that, that version of Waterloo sunsets, a B side off reality. Oh, there you go. Okay. But anyways, this song, um, I, uh, I think I kind of prefer the cover a little bit more. Um, uh, maybe it's because I'm just still trying to find a way to have the kinks break through for me. Um, uh, there's just something missing from or lacking of what I'm looking for in that band. Um, I, I feel if I spend a little bit more time and energy focusing on some of the great stuff, um, I'm sure because you're right, Wes Anderson tends to really like a lot of that British invasion stuff. And I feel like he always likes to pepper those in throughout his, his films. And I like Wes Anderson. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a harmless song. Uh, when I was doing research on this song, apparently Van Halen covered this when uh, uh, David Lee Roth was fronting it. Oh yeah, and apparent. Oh fuck And yeah, uh, it 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 it's closer apparently to the style that Bowie was doing than the Kinks. But uh, David Lee Roth was uh, none too fond of this song. He would be rolling his eyes at uh, kind of the lyrical content because Diamond Dave. Is never wondering where the All fun right. times uh, went because he is Mr. Fun Time. That that that's blows true. my mind because simplistic party time lyrics were that's his thing. So, but but he it's not so much. Um, He's never looking where have all the good times gone because there's always good times. They're never gone. They're here. Diamond Dave, Mister Ski Boppity Boop is not gonna ask where they've gone because he's bringing the party with them. It's the songs about um, feeling old and um, basically like uh, you're nostalgic for your youth, but you're empathetic to the generation that came before you. That's that's essentially what this is about. So. So there that that's, so there it is. That's the uh, the album proper. The Ryko disc version of it had two tracks of which we've already talked about because they were uh, bonus tracks on other records. They were um, true. They were the cover of Growing Up, the Bruce Springsteen track, which we all agree we like on a past episode. And I do want to mention that Ron Wood plays guitar on that one, who was part of, you know, is the Rolling with the Rolling Stones and uh, the Yardbirds and the Jeff Beck group. And a lot of those other bands are tied to this era. And uh, yeah. The other one was that great flamenco track, Amsterdam, that is a very good song. That I Port think, of Amsterdam. Um, no, yeah, yeah the, it's just called Amsterdam, Eric. And nope, it's called Port of Amsterdam. But whatever, no, it's fine. You know what? <laughs> I don't care what the name is because it's a great song. It's so good that I don't even have to get the name right. That's twice. Tonight. I think you're both right. I think you're both right because on the uh, the Ziggy extra disc, it was just simply titled Amsterdam, but the name of the song is Port of Amsterdam. So, and it's a it's you're a both song. right. Everyone's. I don't like it with my dad's fight. All right. 
Well, we'll, um, we'll, we will cover we will cover the Jacques Brawl uh, EP whenever we cover like Let's Dance. So we'll, okay, we'll, we'll get into it. Well, Port of Amsterdam, folks. It's a great track. You should listen to it, despite what anybody else says. It's a, a wonderful song. So Stephen is retconning me and Eric having a <laughs> very negative reaction. He's yeah. he's rise of Skywalkering our last Jedi. <laughs> That's right. He he got the 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 time stone and went back in time to uh, to change. Yeah. That's right. Wow. It's like, it's like Eric's seen Rise of Jedi. That's exactly what happens. Or rise of Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, guys, let's let's hear your your final thoughts and your boltonings. On uh, sure. on pinups, Eric. Uh, we'll start with you no, or Stephen. Yes, start we'll start with, with you. I, I, look, look at this mess I'm making for myself to edit. Um, it's okay. Uh, like I said, it sounds tossed off. It sounds like it could have been recorded live in one playthrough, with the exception of maybe sorrow. I I've listened to this all the way through maybe five times tops in my entire life. Uh, I give it a two. Hmm. Okay, Eric. I uh, I never listened to this until now. I'll be honest with you. I had more fun listening to the original and then his version and comparing them than just listening to his album all the way through. The production is flat. There might be four songs that stand out, and only two of those I think are anywhere in the top, you know, hundred and fifty Bowie songs. Um. Like I said before, he's a master of self-expression. He always seemed to find a way to express himself through covers on the albums that made sense. Yet somehow on this one, it happens very rarely. Uh, I give this one a very sad 1.5 out of 5 volts. All right. I would say I even liked uh, Never Let Me Down better. And I believe I gave that one 2 or something like that. So Interesting. So yeah, I gave Never Let Me Down a 1.5. Um, I felt, and of course, Tin Machine shall not be mentioned um, as being the nadir of David Bowie's career thus far. Um, I would say uh, for pinups, um, it seemed very rushed. It was month, let's put out some product so that way we keep the fans happy before we leading up into the next thing. Um, I felt that uh, uh, the song selection was varied um, and the production, like you said, was very flat and in certain areas it did shine like in sorrow. Um, it never was boring. It was always just like, Oh, that's it. Okay, great. Moving on with my day. So for that, it's a 2.5 for me. So probably oh. a little, skewing a little higher than both of you. I didn't hate it, but I didn't. Uh, so it's almost on par for me as black tie white noise. Ah, See, I would listen to that over this over this one. There's more uh, expression. Bowie Bowie gets to be himself a little bit more on that one. Yeah. Hey, Lennox, what did you think about this record, Pinups, the cover album by David Bowie? I'll drink it. Can I do half bolts? Sure. Half a bolt. Oh. It was not zero yet. There is such thing as zero, mm-hmm. but I just drank it half because it's David Bowie. I can't say any of them are that bad. Mm-hmm. But the but this one was one. This one is one of the worst, and the worst song is anyway, anyhow, anywhere. And the best song is 
And my favorite song was um, Rosalind Sor and Sorrow. Thanks, Lennox. Uh, hopefully people are more kind to your cover songs than you were to David Bowie's. Um, I think it's because I'm more like, uh, I'm more attracted to kind of a classic rock sound than the sound that was on Black Tie, White Noise, and the, uh, Fair the enough. Yeah. really just ramshackle like sequencing, like Never Let Me Down falls apart fast. And um, <laughs> like it is like a, oh. a a bootleg motorcycle just falling apart as it's driving down the uh, the, the highway. Well, I'm not saying that's a good album. I'm just saying I think I appreciate it when Bowie wants to express himself. Like that shines louder than the high points yeah. of this album. So well, with that, well, we'll next? bid this one yeah, a fond farewell as we look to the diamond dice. So Eric, roll it. What's 11? That would be low. There you go. Oh. Oh. So shit. Kicking off the Berlin trilogy with low. So there it is, folks. We are going to go to number lucky number 11 and talk about low, which we're very excited. Now on low, we might have a very special guest. Someone has been angling uh, to potentially guest whenever we hit low. So we could see a returning champion that we had used last season on one episode, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, yeah. Um, but anyways, fellas, it looks like we did it. I'm excited about talking about the next record because it's highly influential and uh, I think we can close the book on pinups as we bend, bid each other fond farewell, and we hope that we all brought you closer to pod. All my life, I never stopped to worry about a thing. Open up and shut it up.